This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Joe Prendergast on ABC Radio WA. Hello, nice to have you tuned in right around WA on a Tuesday afternoon. The Federal Agriculture Minister, Murray Watt, has faced some questions in estimates today about the impact of his plans to phase out the live export of sheep and the effect of that on the current confidence within the sheep industry. Seriously, Minister, you can't mention the live export ban? Well, that's... I mean, you I was know that's the, the, the most significant driver of that number. Well, I, I don't think that's been established, but I've acknowledged that government decisions, state and federal, have obviously... Um, the survey says that they've played a role. That story and some thoughts from a WA sheep producer who was just paid $40 a head for some pretty solid-looking rams. I'll bring you that after 12.30 today. And a single feral bee swarm in New South Wales has just been found to be carrying 9,000 varroa mites. It's a staggering number. And it's important that researchers know the volume of mites that swarms can carry as they continue to study how varroa is spread. But heading north, first of all, this afternoon because the state government has announced its policy positions on a topic that's been contentious for years, water in the Fitzroy River in the Kimberley. So reaffirmation that there'll be no dams allowed on the Fitzroy River or any of its tributaries and the new confirmation that no additional surface water allocations will be licensed. The government does, however, support the licensed take of groundwater, but only where it can be done in a sustainable manner. So just to be clear, at, these, at this stage, these are the government's policy positions. They're not part of legislation yet. But President of the Pastoralists and Graziers Association, Tony Seabrook, says this approach by government shows it's only listening to environmentalists. These people are so far out of touch with reality. This comes as no surprise. We've known that this is part of their policy for quite a long time. But they ought to look out the window. Look what happened last year. Look at the water that went down the Fitzroy. No surface water to be taken. What land are they living in? How is this going to impact stations and, and those operations that are looking to diversify by the use of irrigated crops like sorghum and, and forage crops like that as well as like cotton? Look, this is one of the greatest opportunities that West Australia has in agriculture. You know, the, the Kimberley, with proper use of that water, could come alive you know, it, it's just such a, a foolish step backwards. You know, no dams on the Fitzroy. The amount of water going down that river. You know, the CSIRO report identified what the opportunities were. Now, that report is probably now about five, six years old, but it clearly identified what the opportunities are. So if we can divide into two separate components here, first of all, you have the opportunity uh, to generate wealth on pastoral properties through irrigation. But the one thing that's absolutely missing in the north for all the Indigenous communities up there is jobs. We're bereft of jobs up there. Now, for the people that want to live on country, where they grew up, if they want to live on country, country, that's fine. So this would give them an opportunity to stay in the Kimberley and be part of a vibrant irrigation uh, industry that that could bring the whole of the north to to life. Uh, It's not just about money, it's about jobs and the short-sightedness 
of a state government pandering to a few Greens and a few lefties, mostly in the cities, by putting in place a no-dams policy. For heaven's sake, the 1,700 gigs of water that would need to go down the river as an environmental flow is deemed to be the amount of water required to sustain the river system as it currently is. There'll be no water take uh, if the river doesn't reach that level. But this is only normally about one-fifth of the amount of water that goes down the river in a year. Um, The rest of it just goes into the Indian Ocean to no benefit to anybody. You touched on two different key government positions in one there, the first being that the government is not allowing the Fitzroy River or any of its tributaries to be dammed, and that's something that they've made very clear for a number of years now. The other one is the government recently confirming that no additional surface water will be licensed. There is the argument there that no additional surface water being licensed means that that surface water that's already being licensed can still continue. Is that enough to continue oh, an irrigation industry up there? No. Look, it's, 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 it's a teaspoon. It's a teaspoon of water that's currently being used. You know, it, it, almost nothing. And look, if the offtake of water from either the Margaret or the Fitzroy was stored in, in large sort of on-property uh, contained uh, tanks that would only be filled when the river reached a certain level, it can't do any harm to the ecology of the river. You know, th- this government uh, is bereft of any concept of the sort of the, the depth and scope of what could happen up there if they just take their foot off the neck of people that would like to, to invest and, and get projects up and running and just investigate the possibility of how much water could be used and how to use it. Another policy position that the state government have taken is to say that they support the licensed take of groundwater only where it's shown to be sustainable. Is there an opportunity here to grow the irrigation industry using that groundwater? Well, look, the aquifers are complex. I, I know from the bit of knowledge I have on the, the Derby Basin between Fitzroy and Derby and the, and the water there, it's not one big aquifer. They're all different and they all have a certain amount of capacity to give. Uh, I don't know whether any of it would be free-flowing or whether it would need to be pumped. Um, underground water uh, is a much more delicate thing to use than the staggering amount of flood water that runs down the Fitzroy in, in a wet year. The licensing of that water, is it's up to scientists. I mean, this is a complex issue, and I wouldn't want to buy into that because it, it just... You, know, you can't deplete under, underground water and think you have a future. It has to be sustainable, and, and I'd endorse any, any uh, projects that were ever built around sustainability there. But when you see the water that went down the Fitzroy you know, last wet season... Uh, to think that you can't use any of it, it's absurd. President of the Pastoralists and Graziers Association, Tony Seabrook, speaking about the huge Fitzroy River in the Kimberley, which has a catchment area of almost 94,000 square kilometres, and it often floods in the wet season. I'm keen to hear your thoughts on what Tony Seabrook has just said about the Fitzroy. Do you agree with him? Maybe you don't. The text number zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. Is Labor's policy on the Fitzroy wasting an opportunity to grow more crops in the Kimberley and really just grow the north in general? Is it wasting that opportunity or do you think they're doing the right thing in protecting that, that water? The text number again zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. Let me know what you reckon this afternoon. Just don't forget to pop your name on that text as well. 
Simone McGurk is Western Australia's Water Minister who says their policy positions are based on scientific advice and the Minister feels some of Tony Seabrook's concerns are unjustified. We are actually allocating, um, announcing an allocation of over 100 gigalitres a year of groundwater and that's a significant amount um, by anyone's reckoning. It's also important to understand that when we talk about surface water, which we're announcing um, that we won't allow significant amounts of surface water to be taken, there's small amounts taken now under licence and those licences will be able to continue um, and also there are some uh, exemptions, um, some, some small exemptions for surface water. But when you do take surface water, one point is that you need to capture it somehow. So we've said that we won't allow dams. Tony Seabrook talked about um, structures on properties and the, and the like. He might talk about um, other reticulation sort of piping. And it's hard to imagine what would have survived um, the floods earlier this year or in December last year. Um, so that's another consideration that just the strength of the river means that, that structures to capture that surface water uh, is challenging. But the science also tells us that we don't take that surface water without some implications further down the track. So important wetlands and the recharging of, of aquifers all rely on those heavy floods, which we know are, are variable, um, particularly with climate change, uh, and um, that's been a consideration uh, in our decision. I've spoken to farmers in the Fitzroy region who've put plenty of money and, and work behind developing the infrastructure, much of which did survive the recent flooding. They've put that in for irrigated cropping in the region in what they say is essential to diversify their beef businesses. Do these policy positions mean that their plans are, are dead in the water? There will be significant amounts of groundwater allowed uh, under this proposal. So, as I said, over 100 gigalitres, 108, up to 108 gigalitres per year. Now, of course, the Fitzroy River is over 700 um, kilometres long. So we've announced some of those areas we will not access the groundwater, but others people will be able to access the groundwater. And that's all um, supported by quite a bit of scientific uh, advice and we're releasing that scientific advice for you. So um, very much our plan, we think, uh, gets the balance right of protecting the river uh, and its important ecological and uh, social values for the traditional owners, but also in the environment, but also allowing economic development to occur. By allowing groundwater to be taken, we're allowing that economic development to occur. You're talking about no more than 108.5 gigalitres of groundwater. Just to put that in context, in context, the allocation of water here where I'm sitting in the Ord irrigation area is set as 905 gigalitres a year. Is that 108.5 or less than 108.5 gigalitres of groundwater enough to realistically sustain an irrigation industry? It's significantly more than is licensed under either uh, groundwater or surface water at the moment. So, yes, I'm confident that um, that people will, will be able to use that. Uh, and and make good use of, of that allocation. The other important point is that people have not applied. They're, they're able to apply for surface water now and groundwater now, um, and we've reached nowhere near that limit of groundwater and the existing surface water 
that people um, have been able to apply for will be able to be continued. So people have had these opportunities for many years and talked about them for many years but haven't actually um, made use of of, um, the surface water to date. Minister for Water, Simone McGurk, speaking to Alice Marshall. I've been asking what you reckon about this conversation that we're hearing today on the plans or the government's plans for water management in the Fitzroy. Jeff from Fitzroy Crossing has sent a text. He says science, not political and vested interest experts, should drive this discussion. So Jeff reckons that that should sit with science and not people with vested interests. Keen to get your thoughts on this. 0448922604 is the text line. And in a statement, environmental groups Environ Kimberley's says this move by the government means uh, the National Heritage Listed Matawara Fitzroy River in the Kimberley is a step closer to being protected from Murray-Darling-style irrigation. The group is still concerned about groundwater extraction because it will allow, and I quote, an unacceptable scale of land clearing in such an intact and biodiverse landscape. The statement from Environs Kimberley goes on to say, we know there are limited opportunities for jobs in large-scale irrigation, which causes massive damage, including complete destruction of tropical savanna by bulldozing and burning to grow cotton. That's what Environs Kimberley reckons about the latest policy positions that we've heard from the state government on uh, managing the Fitzroy River. I've been asking uh, what you reckon about it. Do you think that Tony Seabrook is on the money when he says that this will really restrict the growth of the north and particularly the ability to grow uh, crops in the north? But the government has said that if its policy is enacted... If it's made into legislation, there'll be no dams allowed on the Fitzroy River and there'll be uh, no additional surface water allocations to be licensed. Dave from Busso uh, has texted to say they already dammed the Fitzroy um, at Camborlin Liveringa and built massive diversion dikes to grow cotton and sorghum. That failed massively. Floods and bugs made it impossible. That text from Dave and um, Chaz says, if it falls from the sky, store it in some capacity. What do you think? 0448922604 is the text line. 20 past 12. If you want to challenge any mining activities in Western Australia, it could soon cost you almost $1,000. Objecting to activities such as exploration in the Warden's Court is currently free, but the state government is proposing an $859 application fee. That's that's a fee per objection that you would pay. Currently, it's free. Southwest environmentalist Jenny Wise says such a fee would have a big impact on individuals and small groups who have genuine concern about some mining activities. It will mean that small community groups like us would not be able to continue to object to any tenement that comes up that affects us in our immediate area as there are um, a plethora of mining companies wanting to apply for 
tenements to explore in all the way up and down the Darling Range. And a lot of our time is taken up in putting in objections to the applications to explore by a range of different mining companies, some quite small and some quite large. And an example of this is when you took Rio Tinto to the warden's court um, yes. and, and challenged their exploration licence. And ultimately, due to the community pressure, Rio Tinto dropped those tenements and abandoned those plans. Um, That's right. If there was an $859 fee, would you have been able to do that? In no way would any of the community groups be able to afford to do that. Possibly Wafer, but it would really stretch their resources. Um, the Wilderness Society, even these large um, conservation groups would be really, I mean, that's in, in the thousands and that is just too much because Rio had put in for 10 tenements. It, it's a David and Goliath issue and it's just completely undemocratic that uh, members of the public, whether as individuals or community groups, to be charged for what is basically a community right to protest. Do you accept that some fee is sort of fair in this case? Because at the moment it doesn't cost you anything to challenge these tenements in the warden's court. Do you accept that some sort of administrative fee is probably fair and likely to be brought in? To some extent I do actually agree with that because I think you do have to you know, pay for some service, but it has to be a token or a minimal fee. When it comes to individuals and or small groups, it's simply unaffordable and it is against our democratic right to be able to protest. Jenny Wise, Chairperson of the Dwelling Up Discovery Forest Defenders, speaking to Tom Robinson. In a statement, the Department of Mines, Industry, Regulation and Safety says the number of objections before the Warden's Court has increased over the past three years and that's resulted in the court incurring increased costs and needing more resourcing. The statement goes on to say the fee for objections is not designed to stop community scrutiny of mining activities. Steamers is currently undertaking public consultation on the proposed fee and model, but the government proposing an $859 fee if you want to object to activities such as exploration or mining activities. 23 past 12. Authorities have detected an infestation of 9,000 varroa mites on a single feral bee swarm on the New South Wales central coast. The discovery was made as part of ongoing surveillance on feral bees, and that's to monitor the spread of the deadly bee parasite across the state. The DPI's Shannon Mulholland says the testing of feral bees is important for research purposes regarding the spread of the mite. Yeah, we've been able to catch swarms and sample colonies directly uh, for the wild honeybee population. And we have had a few detections of varroa in in some of those colonies. They're predominantly within the Hunter and Central Coast where we have a large number of infested premises and we know that the mite loads are quite high on that coastal fringe. The mite load does vary depending on um, the colony that was sampled on the day. Uh, In some instances, there's only been a handful of mites. Um, in a few, there's been quite a few hundred mites, so the, that's a quite a high mite load. And then there's been a few that have had a, a couple of thousand mites. I think the highest one we've had was around 9,000 mites, um, which is a, a pretty substantial mite load. Uh, and that certainly might be a factor as to why that colony was swarming in the first place. And so what happened to that swarm? Um, so those swarms, uh, as they're found positive, they are euthanized. Uh, and that's just a, a mite control option that we can apply in the field. But 
the, the sampling process uh, was using the alcohol wash technique, which is a destructive sampling process anyway. The wild honeybee team that we have within the response is still going to be actively working with the response moving forward. Um, there's some important research components that they're finishing off, but they're also going to be really important in monitoring our wild bee population uh, over that transition phase. Um, it's really important data for us to consider in terms of understanding the level of infestation and also mite presence. Uh, and it'll be an interesting thing to track to see um, what that mite population does to those wild bee populations. Uh, we'll, we'll do the introductory component of that over the next 12 months, but I'm hoping that that will be an ongoing feature for industry to keep surveying as part of that transition and management of role moving forward. Dr Shannon Mulholland, New South Wales DPI's Deputy Incident Controller for the Varroa Mite Response, speaking to Kim Honan. And here in Western Australia, some commercial beekeepers are gearing up for a promising honey season. Pemberton beekeeper Michael Mikey Chinotta is the Vice Chair of the Bee Industry Council of WA and he says so far in the state south, things are looking pretty good. So the, the trees have had uh, two or three, or the vegetation has had two or three really good uh, winters. So rain is really, really important for bud set and then um, giving trees enough energy to produce um, you know, lots of flower because it's a, it's a high energy expenditure for vegetation to uh, enter into a flowering event. So all of the, the key factors that we look at look positive, uh, but there's a lot of water still to go under the bridge. The Jarrah crop is not a, I wouldn't say it's a blanket budding this year, but there's certainly areas that look uh, look very good. So the Jarrah looks good. The Wandu hasn't flowered heavily for quite some time uh, and has been carrying bud for two or three years, which is uh, not uncommon. So it should be due to flower this year. Um, and then, you know, just, you know, northern sand plains look all right. And then the Mary uh, didn't flower really at all um, last year. And it's generally a biannual flowering event. So um, it's had good winter rains and it should be due for a flowering this year as well. So uh, fingers crossed, everything continues to do or go as it should. And then we'll see some, some good prospective crops that beekeepers can, can work throughout the summer months. Mikey Chinotta, he's the Vice Chair of the Bee Industry Council of WA and he's a commercial beekeeper based at Pemberton, which is about 330 kilometres south of Perth, getting ready to get pretty busy with a promising honey season ahead. Fingers crossed for you, Mikey. This afternoon we've been talking about the state government's policy positions on how it will manage the Fitzroy River in the state's north. A text from Karen Ironic that Tony Seabrook's comments come straight after the conversation this morning about how little we know about our oceans and our tendency to exploit and then explore. There would be many unknown environmental impacts of that fresh water hitting the ocean. I've got sympathy for both sides. There are no benefits without costs, but we really should know the environmental cost before exploiting a resource. That text from Karen, she was responding to Tony Seabrook's sentiments and he's not very impressed that there will be no additional groundwater licences. He believes that um, it's a waste with that water going out into the ocean from the Fitzroy. But Gary from Kalingari has also texted in and if you'd like to 
send a text. The number is zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. Gary from Kalingari reckons Tony Seabrook has vision in regards to the Fitzroy. These state and federal Labor governments are subservient to mad green politics, environmental and Indigenous thinking. They are hostile to the normality of agriculture and pastoralism and to the development opportunities in the north. Gary from Kalingari having his say. You can do the same. The text is zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. The government reaffirming its policy positions. There'll be no dams allowed on the Fitzroy River or any of its tributaries, and confirmation that no additional surface water allocations will be licensed. Let me know what you reckon. The text number zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. It's Close to 12.30, so let's head to the newsroom. It's just coming up to 12.30. Herlin Kaur has headlines. Hello. Good afternoon. Making news today, the WA Premier Roger Cook says extra staff will be key to addressing problems within the state's youth justice system. The comment comes after WA's Children's Court President Hilton Quayle said a young offender's time in detention had left him more dangerous than he went in. Judge Quayle said the boy's treatment at times amounted to unlawful and extrajudicial punishment. Mr Cook says he disagrees with that assessment but does accept that things need to improve. An artificial intelligence expert says a new federal government deal with Microsoft to strengthen Australia's cyber security defences will help identify risks more quickly. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese announced the $5 billion investment by Microsoft during a visit to Washington. The plan would see the money go to setting up new data centres in Melbourne, Sydney and Canberra. And a rescue helicopter has been called to the scene of a quad bike accident in the state southwest. A St John Ambulance spokeswoman says a crew was called just after 11 o'clock to the crash in Boronup Road near Margaret River. The patient is understood to be a woman in her 60s and will be flown to either Bunbury or Perth. More news at one. Herlin, thank you. I've been asking your thoughts this afternoon on the state government's plans to manage the water in the Fitzroy. Michael from Bustleton has sent a text... Hi, I blame the Nationals for forcing the Labor Party to partner with the Greens. The Nationals have blindly stuck to the Liberal Party, despite what they do to the bush, e.g. flogging off railways so cockies have to ship grain to silo by road. Michael letting us know what's on his mind this afternoon. You can do the same. Send me a text 0448 922604. Angeline Prasad is at the Bureau of Meteorology. Angeline, how are things looking in the Southwest Land Division? Hi there, Joe. Um, fairly mild temperatures uh, today across the Southwest but we have got a deepening West Coast trough and that will bring uh, quite warm to hot temperatures from tomorrow. So temperatures tomorrow will be about 6 to 10 degrees above average. On Thursday, we have a weak cold front uh, approaching the southwest coast. So with this cold front approaching, the west coast trough will move inland. So we'll see um, a a slightly cooler change along the west coast, extending all the way to about Shark Bay. But across inland parts of the southwest land division, we will see those very hot temperatures continue for another day. Again, about 4 to 10 degrees above average for this time of the year. As that uh, west coast trough moves inland, it might trigger some 
some high-based, uh, very isolated thunderstorm activity um, uh, during the afternoon and evening period on Thursday. So, uh, especially across the far eastern parts of the southwest lightning division, essentially east of about Lake Grace, um, there's that risk of dry lightning um, and hence uh, that risk of uh, a higher risk of bushfires. Um, with that cold front, uh, it's not expected to um, uh, to produce much rainfall. We might see very light showers extending a little bit further inland across the far southwest, uh, about south of Mora to about uh, uh, Narajin to about Ravensthorp. We might see less than a millimeter of rainfall um, closer to the south coast. Um, South of about Manjum up to about Mount I might see a few more millimeters. Uh, with that, uh, with a southerly change heading uh, across the southwest land division uh, into Friday, we'll see a cooler change. The southerly change might actually bring one or two very light showers all the way to the Geraldton coast. Uh, but yes, uh, with that uh, cold front uh, moving through, um, it'll just be some very light showers in the south coast. So unfortunately, not much rainfall over the next few days, just in the far southwest. And suddenly we'll see... A uh, much milder temperatures return towards the end of the week from Thursday onwards. Th uh, sorry, on Friday onwards through much of the Southwest Land Division. Okay, a touch of rain around by the sound of things. How how about the north? It's uh, continuing hot to very hot conditions and also quite dry. Uh, we've got a few significant uh, wildfires that are continuing to burn across the Kimberley, so widespread areas of smoke. We have started to see one or two thunderstorms, especially during the afternoon and evening period around the coastal uh, parts of the Kimberley. Uh, over the next couple of days, uh, these thunderstorms will extend a little bit further inland, so covering across the northern and eastern parts of the Kimberley. Uh, the thunderstorms across inland parts will again be dry, so little or, or very little rainfall expected out of them. Closer to the northern Kimberley coast, a, a little bit more rainfall, a few millimetres. So these thunderstorms might bring some relief uh, from the daytime heating. Uh, what's interesting though is this week we are starting to see those overnight temperatures also climbing up um, so a low intensity heat wave expected to develop across the north and northwest of the state including the Pilbara um, there will be patches of severe but generally a low intensity heat wave so it's suddenly the heat is uh, continuing to build uh, across the north um, the normal wet season rainfall hasn't started yet so these showers and thunderstorms that I'm talking about are will remain very isolated. So we're not going to see much uh, relief, especially through inland uh, communities, much relief from the heat uh, this week. Any warnings this afternoon, Angeline? Yes. So um, just, uh, just marine wind warning expected uh, across the Lewin coast. Uh, uh, from tomorrow uh, with that uh, the trough uh, deepening across the west coast, we're expecting gale winds across the Esperance coast and strong winds from the Lewin all the way to the Eucla. Um, but apart from that, no land warnings today. Tomorrow, uh, with, uh, with the temperatures heating, heating up in the southwest, we do ex expect high fire dangers across much of the state. And most likely we'll see the Swan Inland South uh, uh, get a fire weather warning, ex expecting extreme fire dangers there tomorrow. Angeline, thank you. Have a good afternoon. Bye-bye. Now, I've been promoted this afternoon to rainfall duty. Richard um, said I could do it. In the past 24 hours, nowhere in WA recorded more than one millimetre of rain.
24 to 12, and it's pretty tough going for some cattle producers in the Murchison at the moment. There has been very little rain in the Mount Magnet area and beyond, and you combine that with the cattle market being flat and flat to the point that some pastoralists just don't have anywhere to send some of their lightweight cows and calves. They're just they're being told not to send them because they won't sell. You can read more about that story online. Just search ABC Rural Cattle and Drought and that story should pop up. But what is going on in the WA cattle market? Midwest based livestock agent Craig Walker says it's a really mixed bag at the moment. The market is there, he reckons, for some mid and heavyweight cattle, but poor conditions across the state are really putting pressure and competition into the market for lightweight animals. We are seeing that the lack of grass that is evident throughout Western Australia and parts of the area that would background cattle has actually caused a caused a downturn in the market and and basically people are just struggling a little bit to to try and find a suitable avenue to place their lighter weight cattle if they haven't already got those commitments in place. If there is an animal that is uh, around 200 kilos, there is a price for those particular animals. There is an outlet for those animals. However, the competition now compared to what it was two years ago is somewhat less given the fact that the eastern states were also uh, strong buyers in the market and kept that market reasonably buoyant. So what are prices doing for those lighter animals? That is a really good question and it can be answered in two ways. Um, What is their weight and what is their genetics? If they're um, agricultural cattle, they're lightweights, the prices are sort of varying anywhere from about $1.50 to $2.40 depending on breed, sex and make. If they're pastoral cattle and they are quality pastoral cattle, they are similar values. And if they uh, sort of lack the breeding and the depth of breeding and carrying a fair bit of horn and they are in lighter condition, meaning that they are pretty plain, you're sort of getting down to about a dollar a kilo uh, up to about dollar eighty. So just depending on what it is. What about the heavier animals? What are they fetching? Well, basically, it just depends, again, on on breed and make and shape and, and so forth. So if you compare cattle that are going to come out of my area, like Mekathara and Waluna and through there, they're going to be vastly different to what's going to come out of Boya Brook or, or Albany or somewhere like that. And places in between are going to have variances too, like the Kimberleyers against the Pilbara, the North Pilbara against the, the Gascoigne and so forth. So it all comes back to a fair fair few variables there as, as far as genetics, the type of animal that you're trying to sell. But if we threw a blanket over most things. If we're looking at fat cows, you're sort of looking at about $1.30 to $1.60, somewhere around there. And to be $1.60, they would want to be really, really good uh, southern cows. Uh, we're seeing a lot of bulls that are around um, big heavy bulls that are around the $2 mark and, and below sort of $1.80 to $2, again, depending on breed and shape. But you know, the demand still for that big top end is is very good, as well as the middle part of our market. We're seeing everything, you know, like 350, 360 seems to be the magic one, magic figure. And it used to be that if we go back 10 years ago, that was always a magic figure, 350 kilos and that you always had a home to go there, be it for a feedlotter or for a backgrounder or a live exporter. Three, 350 kilos was the magic number. And we basically reverted to what it was a decade ago with our marketing. What are some of the other contributing factors? You mentioned the season and it has been a poor season right across the state. Are there other factors that are contributing to um, the lack of a market for the lightweight? 
not really for the lightweights on lightweight cattle, and it doesn't matter what make and shape you've got, whether it's uh, the Albany Blacks or it's uh, the uh, Drought Masters out of the Gascoigne and Sanders out of the, the Murchison. It doesn't really matter what breed you have. It's, it is all about where the market those cattle are going to go. So if you've got a farm and you can go and background those cattle, well, that's got to be your focus. You've got to go and put them on grass. Grass is a key indicator, and where we've seen the dry time that, you know, if we look up along the Gascoigne coast there, you, you've seen places there with under 100 mil of rain uh, or, you know, around that sort of figure. So they've got a few issues. So they've then got to make a management decision in the scheme of things. Do I sell my old old cows and this is where your discussions with your agents who understand it instead of selling my 10 year old cows i'll go down to eight year old cows and and sell those and keep my heifers and allow them to grow out and mature uh do i castrate my young um, male cattle that are under 200 kilos turn them into steers and run them through for 12 months I fully appreciate there's costs and, and things like that to remuster it. But they're the management tools that you've got to make. So if you are finding a dry and, it, and it's tough, uh, maybe look at selling a few extra older cows and reducing the age of your herd and bringing the younger cattle through and then culling them when there's a change of season. When we get rain, it's one ingredient that really does make a world of difference. No matter if you're cropping, grazing or whatever you're doing, one ingredient changes a whole lot and that's rain. It does. Magical stuff that falls from the sky. Is there a situation with congestion at the processors? There's a little bit, but um, that is sort of expected. Uh, if we go back in traditionally and we have a look at what's going on, we normally do see around September, October, November is sort of a pretty tough time because there is a lot of mustering which is done on a water catchment basis, which is done out in the eastern parts of the of the state in the, in the rangeland. So Traditionally, we do see that this time of year is where the big numbers come through. And I think if we went back probably three years ago in uh, Mewshay, we were getting numbers of 3,000 cattle that were being presented for sale on a weekly basis. And that was due to the fact that everyone was sort of selling. The quiet time is generally from your December, uh, particularly in our part of the world. It really comes in at when the temperature starts to hit 38 pretty regularly and people stop mustering. So it'll be your November through to about March. You do have different times, but traditionally there is a bit of a, a backlog at the moment, and we are still seeing that at the moment with probably a few cattle that are being forced onto the market that wouldn't be normally forced onto the market due to dry conditions. Director of Midwest Agribusiness, Craig Walker, and he services the Midwest and the Gascoigne, speaking to Lucinda Joyce about what is going on in that cattle market. A bit of a mixed bag according to Craig Walker. Staying with the livestock sector, but moving into sheep, the Federal Agriculture Minister, Murray Watt, has conceded the government's push to ban live sheep exports is affecting confidence in the sheep industry. Federal Labor has committed to phasing out the trade sometime after the next election. It has appointed an expert panel to advise on the process. But under questioning from Liberal Senator Slade Brockman at an estimates hearing in Canberra this morning, Senator Watt acknowledged it's one of the factors behind a decline in farmer confidence. So you are aware that currently in Western Australia, confidence is at minus 53%. What do you think is driving that, Minister? Well, I think I think there's a number of factors. Um, I, think, uh, I think it's quite possible that government decisions at state and federal level may have had an impact on those results. Um, uh, I'm honest enough to acknowledge that. 
But I do think that I, in my opening statement I addressed the um, sharp falls we've seen uh, in livestock prices, not just in Western Australia but around the country, that I think is having an impact on confidence. Um, and of course the onset of drier conditions um, and approaching drought with all of the consequences that has for farms I think is playing a factor as well. Seriously, Minister, you can't mention the live export ban? Well, that's... I mean, you I was know that's the, the, the most significant driver of that number. Well, I, I don't think that's been established, but I've acknowledged that government decisions, state and federal, have obviously... Um, the survey says that they've played a role. Minister, the eastern states, the most significant concern for farmers driving down their confidence is commodity prices and weather. You'd expect that, yes? Yeah. In well, WA, it's government policy. Hmm. So I, you I, tell me what other policies, apart from the live export brand you are looking after that is driving down confidence? Well, I acknowledged at the very beginning of my answer that the survey said that state and federal government policies government had had an impact. Policies. So I'm not trying to pretend otherwise. Um, I do think that those other factors... So, so, so apart from live export ban, Minister, what are your other policies that are driving down confidence? Well, according to Senator McKenzie and Senator Canavan, there's a whole host of them. Agriculture Minister Murray Watt at a Senate Estimates hearing in Canberra this morning. Dan King runs White, Pole, White Springs Pole Merino Stud, which is based near Kalingaree, about 150 kilometres northeast of Perth. Dan, what do you make of those comments from Murray Watt on the reasons behind the fall in confidence in the sheep industry? He talks like a real politician, beats around the bush and doesn't get to the answer. It's quite clear that he knows the answer is what he's, he's the uh, live export ban, but he's too weak to admit it. It's a concession in a way saying that government policy is partially responsible, but then we also hear him saying that the live export ban has not been established as the most significant driver of the, the downward turn in confidence. So if you had his ear, what would you say when you hear those those two statements? He's a liar in my opinion because... As far as I'm concerned, the live export banning is the the full answer. There's just no confidence in the state anymore with sheep because of that. And without the live export, the, the local markets are being flooded with, with animals and hence we see where the prices are at the moment. You sold some uh, rams the other day. How did they go? Uh, yeah, we sold our leftover rams that didn't make the sale and... and that were left over for private selections. Yeah, we got $40 a head for them, which is, yeah, for a hundred over 100 kilo animals, a bit of a joke, but um, that's just where we are at the moment. So time you take your, your commission costs and your freight costs and all the rest of it out, it doesn't leave much for the bank. To be honest, I think we'd be losing money on that. I was wondering if that would cover your cost of production by the time you take your actual sale expenses out probably looking at just over $30, would you have put more than $30 worth of feed and time into them? Oh, most definitely. Um, yeah, they've been on been on lick feeders to uh, pretty much all season to grow, um, to get them to where they are now. And I have no doubts they would have eaten well and truly over $40 worth of feed each. Mm. Um, so, yeah, we'd be, we'd be losing money on that sort of... Um, those sort of numbers, yeah. You put a, a tweet up with a picture of them, Dan. They're lovely looking, solid sheep. They'll go to the meat market now? Uh, yeah, they'll go to the meat market, which I'm not sure 
what they do with that, whether they go in the butcher shop or fly over overseas, I don't know, I'm not sure. Mm. These are your leftover rams and you, you've had your main ram sale. How did that go in comparison to the past few years? Um, well, this year was our first first ever sale as we only bought the stud last year from Ramilly. At the time, I was a bit disappointed, but um, we were the first sale of the season, of course, um, so it's a bit hard to, hard to gauge what was good and what wasn't good. But um, now that the ram season is just about finished, yeah, I was, and reflecting on everyone else's um, sales, I'm, I was fairly happy in the end. But the averages were down a, a bit um, from previous years, of course. But um, it was just mainly the the clearance was the the um, hard part. Was we had um, 30 pass in out of the 80 rams, which was yeah, like I say, it was a bit disappointing. But hopefully, I can see a bit of bit of light at the end of the tunnel. But um, yeah, I, I think it's a, a little bit of away yet but mm. hopefully we can get back to somewhere where we can all all make money and all afford to buy it out of the shop and what is that happy medium what does that look like for you because we've had this situation where uh stock prices got very high and meat has become unaffordable but now cattle and sheep prices are quite low and, and people are still saying that meat is unaffordable so what does that happy balance look like on you Getting $250 for a sheep wasn't sustainable for anyone, although it was good when we were getting it. I knew it couldn't last because no one can afford to buy meat out of the shop when you've got to pay that sort of money for it. But if it, if we could get $150, $160 for a, for a young sheep and sort of $100, $120 for an old sheep, I think that would be a happy medium for everyone. We'd be making a bit, a bit of money off that and the average Joe Blow could could afford to buy meat out of a shop then. You're in a pretty challenging situation at the moment where prices aren't great, but your longer-term outlook for the sheep industry, you're going to stay in it? Yeah, we've actually um, picked up a little bit more land, um, a lease next year, so um, we've actually held back an extra two mobs of sheep that we'd normally sell. Like at the end of every year, we'd sell all the old ones off, but we've actually kept two extra mobs um, so, yeah, I, I think the, it'll get back to normality soon, I hope, but um, we'll stick to it. Yeah, we're not going out of them yet. Stan, good to talk to you today. No worries. Thanks, Joe. Kalingaree sheep producer and breeder, Paul Marino stud owner Dan King, just reflecting on some of those comments from Murray Watt about the effect of the live trade policy. Just under 10,000 head of sheep and lambs went under the hammer at Mushay today, so I'll bring you the details of that sale in roughly 10 minutes or so. But 20 students from Indonesia are getting ready to fly back home again after spending six weeks living and working on top-end cattle stations as part of a really unique pastoral exchange program. Indonesia has long been Australia's largest customer for live cattle and the relationships that are formed during this pastoral exchange program are intended to help the industry for years to come. The graduation ceremony for students was held in Darwin and so the Northern Territory Country Hour presenter Matt Bran went along. Yeah, my, my name is Will Evans, I'm the Chief Executive of the Northern Territory Cattlemen's Association. This evening we're here at the graduation ceremony for the NTI 360 program, 
It's a program where we've had 20 Indonesian students from 16 different universities, from 14 different provinces all across Indonesia come to Australia and spend the last couple of months working in the cattle industry in the Northern Territory. For you as the Chief Executive of the NT Cattlemen's, what do you hope this partnership achieves long term? I mean the long term vision Matt is, is the relationship that we have with our, our participants from Indonesia and we want to be able to stay in touch with them. We've got more than 200 alumni now in Indonesia and, and we regularly see them when we go to Indonesia. It's about increasing that, that knowledge and awareness of the pastoral industry and hopefully Matt in the future we're going to see a pathway for these students to return and come back and work on cattle stations in the territory full time. But that's something that we're working on at the moment, it's still a pipe dream. Um, but the, these, this, this was a great group of guys. They're, they've been terrific out on station this year and they're going home just before it gets really hot, which is probably a good thing. And will young ringers, jillaroos from the Northern Territory get a chance to go to Indonesia? We, we actually will be. We'll be taking eight of our future NTCA this year. They'll be going over to Jakarta next month and we'll be seeing the alumni and the kids that have been a part of the program here and doing a, a tour of the supply chain in Indonesia. So it's something that we're continuing to work on. It's something that we want to see continually grow and it's something that's really important to the business of the NTCA. We'll get to meet some of the Indonesian students in just a moment, but first let's have a chat to Adrian Phillips, who is from Anabaru Cattle Station near Darwin, an operation that does some cattle, also does some buffalo. You took on some students for the first time. What was that like for you, Adrian? Oh, it was absolutely great. Like, I was a bit worried first, you know, when they first rocked up, I thought, oh, a bit soft, these boys, but, you know, we hardened them up, eh? They did very well, like, they're a absolutely great young fellas, got in real diversity of everything from, you know, a lot of processing wieners, fencing, building cattle crates, working with us in the shed, fencing, land management issues right the way through, and uh, towards the end, once we got them a little bit sort of hardened up to the territory, we, we took them out catching free-range buffalo, and before you know it, they were tying bulls to trees and having a great time, mate. They were driving pickup trucks, helping. It was an absolute credit to them, mate. Like, I'd, I'd give these boys a job any day, eh? You know, they're really, really good. And just to learn from them their side as well, you know, and I'll, I'll never forget the look on their face the first night they rocked up. They got a big T-bone steak the size of the dinner plate and their eyes just fell out of their head, you know? They just, yeah, really, really good fellas. They wear their heart on their sleeve and they never, ever complain. And we were doing some pretty long hours. Yeah. I'll go and find a few Indonesian students. Thanks for your time, Adrian. No dramas, mate. <laughs> uh, all right, my name is Satria Lantip. I'm, I'm coming from Indonesia. Um, I'm a student in University of Gajah Mada, Indonesia, majoring animal science. And we've been out on the station for six weeks trying to um, get beautiful experience. For me, especially going to Nabru. I've been really, really amazing experience for my life. We learn not only about working on the yard, but also a little bit of everything. We have to be firemen when we have to shut the fire. Yeah. We have to be a mechanic when we have to fix the truck, the road train. Also so you've learnt lots. Tell me also about the fun stuff of living and working on a cattle station. The most really unforgettable moment for me was the buffalo catching and I found it that's the only station that have this experience and buffalo catching is the best buffalo better than cattle <laughs> <laughs> yeah getting in the old bull catcher and the bionic arm that was you was it yeah wow absolutely brilliant and it's been really 
beautiful experience. They're really friendly, really welcoming and respect our everything. Yeah, and that's lovely. And final question, what was the best meal you had while in Australia? Um, that was my first meal in the dinner, T-bone steak, a Nabru steak, yeah, that was the best one. I think I've heard about this steak, it was the size of, of the house. That's massive, massive. yeah, bigger than the plates. <laughs> How fun does that sound? I think I want to do that. That's the uh, Northern Territory Indonesia 360 program. Setria there, one of the Indonesian students involved, catching up with Matt Bran. About 9,500 sheep and lambs sold at Muche this morning at the sale yards. About 3,800 head up on last week. The MLA's Terry Birkin has all of the uh, details. He's been at the sale. Terry, can you run through some of the prices, please? Numbers rose substantially today with large volumes of mutton and store lambs and limited supplies of new season lambs with weight. Even though the buying group was well represented, the market softened with trade and heavier lambs easing six to eight dollars and store lambs back five dollars a head. Apart from the odd pen and merino ewes reaching fifty-four dollars with the fleece, the mutton market was also back five to six dollars a head regardless of weight. Store lambs ranged from ten to forty-two dollars, while light lambs were selling from thirty to sixty dollars a head. Trade lambs returned forty-seven to seventy-five and heavy lambs sold up to ninety-nine dollars a head. Rams are still ranging from $5 to $20, while the best of the weathers realised $56 a head. Bony ewes started at $2 up to $15, while medium to heavy ewes ranged from $20 to $40 and up to $54 with around 80mm of wool. This is Terry Birkin for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service at New Show. Thank you, Terry. So 9,495 was the total all up, and of that, 3,000... 974 were lambs. At the beginning of the program today, you heard the state government has released its policy positions on the Fitzroy River water in the Kimberley and no dams are allowed on the Fitzroy River or any of its tributaries and no additional surface water allocations will be licensed. But the government does support the licence take of groundwater but only where it can be done in a sustainable manner. And the PGA's Tony Seabrook thinks that this is an overly cautious approach and it will hinder development in the north. Lots of you have sent in texts to have your say on this issue. Andrew says, so thousands of hectares of sensitive and pristine national natural bush can be cleared for housing in the city. We desalinate the ocean to provide water, but Labor doesn't want to give the go-ahead for agriculture and food security. This government is against agriculture and won't be happy until there's none of us left. What will the city folk live on when we have no food production? That text from Andrew, but uh, Paul says pastoralists on the Fitzroy should be able to do the same thing that Twiggy Forest is doing on the Ashburton. Craig from Broome reckons the wet season flooding of the Fitzroy River is not wasted water. The water spreads over the floodplains and replenishes the natural environment. What reaches the ocean nourishes the marine life. The rain or the river does not flood over the entire valley plains every year. Some years there's much less rain. The Kimberley will experience drier seasons due to climate change and the seasonal flooding will be more essential going forward. That text there from Craig and so many other messages, I'm sorry that I just won't get time to because we are heading towards one o'clock. Thank you for your company. I'll catch you again soon. It's news time now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. 
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.